Okay, I'll be left in the shit one regime, Smiller Rahman Rahim, or call the rubbish of his sadri, or yes, Ali Amri, Wahla Okutalim Sani of Koli, Bismillah, he will Hamdulillah, he was Salatu Slam, Allah Rasulullah, Sris Ahmad. One of the most beautiful things about the way that Allah SWT guides us into following the straight path is that everyone has an equal opportunity to their life to play out. They can literally choose the direction they want. And Allah SWT in all his wisdom, and for those people who are more scientifically minded, you know, will probably sometimes have a problem with this concept because Allah is not constrained by time or space or matter in itself. Allah knows exactly what's going to happen to each and every one of us. That does not mean that he's forced us to go in a certain direction. He just knows the outcome. Allah chooses not to interfere with what you decide to do, uh, the decisions that you make, the actions that you do, except for the resultants of your actions. So in, in that way, Allah SWT gives himself the control of everything in this universe other than what you think and what you do then he can easily create pathways in what happens into your life and how he can join people together, how he can influence people, how he, people can go in the wrong direction. And in this, this is why it's important for us as Muslims to believe and to understand that we have to, first of all, make initiation actions ourselves. We don't expect Islam to come knocking on the door for us. We have to have make some sort of action towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala as the hadith talks about if you come hand span to me Allah will come at arm's length you come walking to me I'll come running to you and the operative concept here is that you got to make the first move okay and it could be by the blessing of certain people when they make dua for you or there's direction for you that the way that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala makes things happen in the universe, that you will come across certain people, you will come across certain experiences that will open your mind. So here Allah ta'ala says that there is never a chance that I am unfair. I give everyone an opportunity. And I give those opportunities by creating scenarios that give you the ability to think about, is this the right way for me? Is this going to lead me to something right? Is this going to lead me to something wrong? So there will be a scenario. So for example, if somebody comes in front of you and tries to offer you a drink, that is not a good, bad, good situation or a bad situation. That's an opportunity for you to then decide whether you do the right thing or whether you decide to do the wrong thing. So Allah will put these scenarios always in front of you. So when we study the seerah and we look at all of these, you know, these characters and individuals and what happens to them and the eventuality of what Allah creates for them, Abu Jahl was doomed, Abu Lahab was doomed because the opportunities were put in front of them but they did not decide to take that. And Allah gives amples of opportunity but Allah knows what's in your heart. That's why the hadith says that on the day of judgment when you come in front of Allah and you will beg Allah give me one more chance, I did not know, give me one more chance. Allah says even if we send you back you will repeat your mistakes again. You will go back and you'll still do it because that was your nature, that is what you decided to do. Not because Allah made you do that. So Umar bin Khattab was one of those characters. If we talk about his personality and his position, his status within the Quraysh and the Ummah. Now Umar bin Khattab was from the, a tribe called Banu Adi. They were not a huge tribe. They weren't like a very influence, influential family. But they had a standing under the Quraysh. So they were part of the Quraysh but a smaller family. And Umar bin Khattab's father was a very, very tough character. And he brought him up very, very harsh. So Umar was a very disciplined individual. He didn't have a strong relationship with his father, but he was a man of his own. So he learned to stand up for himself, make his own way. And as a result of that, he grasped on naturally to the principles and the values of his beliefs and his ideologies, and he would enforce those as much as he can. And because of the fact he didn't have that loving and that affectionate relationship with his father, that made himself a very harsh and strong individual where he didn't really care what you thought. If he had a certain view, he's a very black and white individual. He would tell you straight to your face what he thinks. He doesn't like something and it will either end up in a him winning the conversation or end up in a fight. So he was a very tough person. So his standing was such that he was, with this character and this persona, he was also a very free, caring individual. He used to always drink a lot, 
go out with the lads as well. And maybe that was partly because of the fact that his harsh upbringing didn't have that love and compassion. There might have been that character in him or that personality trait where he didn't have that love and affection from people that made him feel like, you know, he just wants to just do what he, whatever he wants to do. So Umar bin Khattab's standing was such that he valued the, the relationships of the community and he believed that those values were correct. So when Muhammad came out preaching this dawah, he did not take onto it very nicely. He had, he had a very strong views against it. Because the way he perceived Muhammad is very much the way the world perceives Muslims today. That whenever we give dawah and we try to push our ideas against the, the flow of the river here, the, if you think about the West and the values that they push, Right, the freedom of the women, the freedom of the men, the freedom of relationship, the freedom of economy, the freedom of everything. We we are a religion of many morals, many many values, many regulations, and those regulations are good. And people who understand the impact of a free society know that regulations are very important. So when you come up with these ideas, when people, when your friends look at you and say, oh, so you got fast 30 days, so you got to pray five times a day, you're not allowed to drink, you can't have you know, relationships outside of marriage, they just think you're a doomed individual, that your life is condemned to a monastery. So when they look at us, they just think your values are rubbish, it doesn't work for us. But then when you start portraying these values and you push these values, they don't like it. Like, why are you causing problems? Now you imagine if a Muslim gives dawah to a non-Muslim and that non-Muslim then converts, look at the impact that will have to his family. The wife will probably be upset, the kids will be upset. If he was a young child, the mother and father will be upset. Well, what will happen? The community will say, look, you broke up a family. You converted him to Islam. Now the mother doesn't talk to him, the father doesn't, they're upset, etc. But it takes time to bed, right? These, these concepts, what happens eventually in the, in the eventuality of these kind of scenarios, we know that when these Muslims, when they convert, the fathers begin to realize he's actually become a better son. The mother realizes he becomes more loving and affectionate. The brother begins to realize he's a decent person. He's got a bit of moral grounding. The wife realizes he's not like the others who goes out drinking and ends up sleeping in bed with somebody else or wasting all the money he has in salary and doesn't spend it on us. So it has, its, it has its change, but on the initial side, it doesn't look good. So Umar bin Khattab had the same feeling that, look, here's this man, Muhammad, he comes along with his merry men, and they're causing so much fitna in the community. Now, at that time, when Umar bin Khattab, time just of his conversion, there was only about 80 people in Makkah that were, that were Muslims. There wasn't a lot. So he just felt like he's causing a lot of problems, a lot of issues, and he was a very open, brash individual. Everybody else wanted to take the political discussion, the bit of diplomacy, but he wasn't like that. I'm ready to take out my sword, I'll slice you, dice you up. That was his attitude. So Umar bin Khattab's conversion happened at a very sort of unique time. Now, last week we covered the story about Amr bin al-As and when he went to Abyssinia. So Allah gave permission to the Muslims because the persecution of the Muslims who were unable to defend themselves, didn't have big families, weren't from rich backgrounds, those who were able left Makkah to go to Abyssinia to a land that was more in line to their belief, the Christians, and they were protected there. So Amr ibn al-As was sent by the Meccans to go and basically draw them out of that hole of Abyssinia so they can bring them back and carry on torturing them. But the Negus refused to send them back because they came to take refuge in, their la in his land. So he refused. So Amr ibn al-As came back failing. And this was the time when Umar bin Khattab became Muslim. So whilst he was gone, and this is months, right? The journey takes a long time. So during this time in Makkah, whoever else was left, Muhammad was protected by Allah because of his protection from his uncle Abu Talib and because of his standing in the community, his family had a huge reputation, the Banu Hashim. And the next family next to him is called the Banu Matalib. So Banu Hashim is almost like his first cousins. And the Banu Matalib is like his extended family. Okay, So he was completely protected. But it was unfortunate for some of the other Muslims. Amr bin Yasir, his mother Sumeya, who was tortured and killed. Hazrat Bilal, all the slaves were being killed or tortured. The others were, you know, who didn't have any grounding or strong families. They were constantly being tortured or they were being oppressed. So... When he returned back, the public opinion in Makkah was becoming so severe, 
it almost kind of started off with this particular story. When the people were leaving Makkah to go to Abyssinia, Umar ibn Khattab came across by one Muslim woman by the name of Umar Abdullah. And she was packing up her camel. She has a husband by the name of Amir. So she was packing up ready to go. And Umar ibn Khattab, he came past and saw them. Amir had left, so she's packing up the camel. He went off back into the city to grab the remaining stuff to go for the... It's a long journey, right, for them to go from Makkah to the coast of uh, Jeddah and then across to Abyssinia. So they had to take us whatever they can. So she was on her own and Umar ibn Khattab walked past her. And remember, Umar ibn Khattab had a lot of hatred towards Islam at this point. So when he saw this woman, he said, what are you doing, Umar Abdullah? She says, because of you and people like you, the torture, the oppression, everything that you have applied on us, that you have forced us to forsake our home. Now you just imagine your own community in Slough, if, you, if people pushed you out, you have to leave your home, that you worked, you built your bank accounts, everything, all your assets, you can't even take them. And you have to leave the community, the hometown that you got brought up in, your fathers, your mothers, everyone lived in, and you've been kicked out. You'll be very angry, very upset. So when she said this, this saddened Umar ibn Khattab. And it saddened and angered him at the same time. Because for him, he was thinking, I feel sad that why you have to leave. But I'm angry at the same time why Muhammad created this situation for everyone to hate on you and for all the other Muslims. So this kind of like brewed up a little bit more. But she said that when I saw his face after saying this, he responded back to her and said, may Allah protect you and keep you safe. They believe in Allah alongside other gods. So he left. And Ahmed, her husband, came back. And she said to him, guess what? Umar ibn Khattab just came. And I thought that he was going to attack us because we're the Muslims. But he actually had some love and affection in his eyes. He felt really sad and upset that we were leaving. I think that Islam is maybe touching his heart. Amr, her husband, turned around and said, the donkey of Khattab has more chance of becoming Muslim than this man does. This was, everyone knew that he was so anti-Islam that, the, <laughs> that there was no chance, and hence the statement. So they went off on their journey. Now a time came, there's two different stories about how he became Muslim. I'm going to talk about both of these. So the first story is the one that you all know about, which is probably the, mo the more stronger one. So Umar ibn Khattab one day, he's in the community, obviously the public opinion is still brewing out against the Muslims. So Umar ibn Khattab one day decided, because there was a parliamentary assembly and they wanted to really go for Muhammad Salam and all his Sahabi and everyone they can, Umar ibn Khattab decided that he's going to grab some of his men and they're going to go and get him. All right? They wanted to go and attack him that night. So, Umar ibn Khattab started walking around in Makkah. He had his sword, his weapons, and he had his friends with him. They started walking around and they ran into one of the first Sahabi who kept himself very, very quiet. A Sahabi from the same tribe as him, the Banu Adi. And his name was Nuaym bin Abdullah. So, when he started going round and asking people, where is Muhammad? I want to find him, etc. Now, Muhammad Sallam was in an area of Safa where what he used to do, he used to go to this house and there were 40 Muslims with him and he would regularly get together and give them dawah or he would teach them about Islam and go through the Quran. And at, on this particular day, everybody was with him. Hazrat Hamza was with him, Abu Bakr Sadiq, Hazrat Ali, etc., etc. So when he was searching around, he ran into Naim bin Abdullah. Now, Naim bin Abdullah was a Muslim, but he was a closet Muslim. He didn't want anyone to know because some Muslims were allowed to keep their identity secret because it makes sense. You don't want to expose yourself all the time. You've got to be very smart in the way you... You're not, a, you're not going to be a hero in Islam just because you say, I'm a Muslim, come and shoot me, right? Right in front of uh, you know, a BNP organization or a march, right? That's not a smart way of doing things. You've got to be clever in the way you want to deal with situations. So when Noam saw him and he saw how angry he was, he goes, where are you going? He says, I'm looking for Muhammad. I'm going to want to find him. I'm going to kill him. He says, you think that if you find him, that the Banu Hashim and the Banu Abdul Muttalib, his extended family, and let you just go ahead and kill him. They'll end up killing you and your 40 men first. Now, Noam was panicking because he wanted to protect Muhammad Salam. So, out of his 
stress and his nervousness by mistake, he said, before you decide to go and deal with Muhammad, why don't you go take care of your household first? He said, what are you talking about, my household? He goes, go to your sister, Fatima, and your brother-in-law, Said, because both of them are Muslims. He said, what? They kept it quiet. They didn't, he didn't know. But he realized the way I made a big mistake that I've actually pointed him down in the wrong direction. So now Umar bin Khattab goes charging over to his sister's house, Fatima. Now Fatima, radiallahu anha, she's in the house with her husband, Said, And in that house is the Sahabi Khabab bin Arat. And Khabab bin Arat is the very famous Sahabi. He's the one that, you know, used to lift up his shirt and show people how he got tortured. You know, they used to take hot coals and burn his back, you know, for him to leave Islam. So as he's approaching, they see that he's coming. So Fatima says, my brother's coming. And they know how angry and tough a brother is. So Khabab bin Arad quickly hides underneath the bed, right? Or he runs off into one of the bedrooms. And she has a, a, a manuscript, which is Surah Taha on there. So she sits down, she puts it underneath her thigh. Umar Khattab walks in and he says, who was here reciting? She says, what are you talking about? He says, I'm not stupid. I walked towards the house and I could hear someone murmuring, meaning reciting the Quran. She said, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why you're here. You just need to go. And he was already angry. And he said, is this true that I heard that you now become Muslim? And then she said, yes, we become Muslim. So he turned around and lashed out on her husband and he beat him quite badly. She got up to defend her husband and he hit her hard, right? Just a reaction. When this happened, Fatima became so upset, she started screaming and shouting at Umar. And she says, you have no business to be here. Yes, we have become Muslim. We love Allah. We follow the Prophet Muhammad And you need to understand that what you follow is complete kufr and you will go to hell if you carry on following this way. Immediately, because he, hit, so he has a lot of affection for his sister, but when he hit her and when he saw the blood coming from her mouth, that's when he completely calmed down. And he said to her, let me look at that manuscript. She said, no chance. He goes, I'm not going to do anything. I promise you. I swear on my gods that I will not do it. Just let me have a look at that manuscript. She said, you're a mushrik and you're not even clean. So she made him do wudu, ablution, or wash himself. So he did that. And then he took the manuscript and then he read the, uh, the eye of the Quran. Then this opened up his heart. Okay, this started now making him relaxed. And when he started responding to his sister and saying that this is amazing, I've never read anything like this, that's when Khabar bin Arad came out. And Khabar bin Arad says only the other day that the Prophet Muhammad made a dua to Allah saying that, Ya Allah, give me one of the two Umrs. And the other Umr was Abu Jahl, that was his real name. And this one was Umr Khattab. And he says, I only pray it's you. So at that moment, that's when Umar Khattab said, I want to embrace Islam. So he says to his sister and Sayyid and Qawab uh, al take me to the house. I want to go and see Prophet Muhammad So So Qawab bin Arad said, I'll take you. So they go. Now, Umar Khattab is carrying his sword with him. As he's now approaching, now obviously they're in this house of Arqam and they're, you know, Muhammad teaching, they've got one person who's on a lookout. They don't know who's going to turn up. Because not everyone knows in that house who is Muslim, who isn't. Some have kept the identity secret. So as they look, they can hear footsteps. So one of them looks out and they said, oh my God, it's Umar coming. Everyone, everyone ran to the back of the house. And Hazrat Hamza was there. And Hazrat Hamza, he's another very strong character. He's not scared of anyone. If there's anyone who can take Hazrat Umar was probably Hazrat Hamza because he was a born warrior. He says, if he comes in here, and he'd be polite to us, we'll return the favor. But if he wants to fight, no problem. He goes, I'll take his own sword and I'll take his head off. They knock on the door. Muhammad said, said, just open the door, let him in. And he comes in and Muhammad grabs him by his belt on the side, pulls him in. He goes, what do you want? Why did you come here? Umar Khattab didn't respond any harshly. He just said, oh, messenger of Allah, I want to embrace Islam. I have read Surah Taha. My sister has showed me, and I believe that this is the truth. 
And immediately Muhammad was so happy. He looked back at everyone and shouted, Allahu Akbar. Obviously, they all knew what happened. They all came out. Now, this conversion now changed many different things. It was because of Umar bin Khattab, the Muslims were never able to pray outside the Kaaba. Because anyone who tried to pray outside the Kaaba, they would try, they would kill him. So they would just stay away from the Kaaba. It was when he became Muslim, is when then he went forward into the Kaaba and didn't let anyone stop him. We'll cover that in a minute. Now the second, the second opinion of the story, Umar bin Khattab one day went out at night and he wanted to meet up with his drinking buddies. Okay, there's no mobile phones, nothing, right? So you meet up at a tavern. So he turns up there, none of his friends turn up. So then he decided, okay, I'm going to go to, because obviously they were going to bring the drinks, I'll go to the wine trader. So he went looking for the wine trader so he can buy some wine and get drunk. He wasn't there either. So Allah Ta'ala didn't let any, so this is what I'm talking about. Allah Subhanahu Ta'ala creates scenarios for you. You understand? You're not in control whether that guy's going to be there or not. That's what Allah's in control over. So now this guy doesn't show up. So he decides, okay, I'll go to the Kaaba. I've got nothing else to do, and I'll do the tawaf. They're religious people. It's their custom, right? Okay, I wouldn't, I wouldn't even consider it to be a religious thing. I would say it's just a customary thing that they did. So he went, thought, I'll go to the Kaaba, and I'll just do my tawaf. When he got to the Kaaba, Muhammad Sallam used to always come and pray at night. Okay, always, because no one used, everyone used to be asleep. It's the only time. And remember the direction of the prayer was towards Jerusalem, Al-Quds. Okay, it was not towards the Kaaba. It was not permit for him to intentionally pray towards the Kaaba because of the idols. The abrogation of that, meaning the change of that law, when Allah forced or the Muslims to pray towards the Kaaba was when he went to Medina. So we're talking maybe another 10, 11 years after this event. So Umri Khattab said, I came and I could hear him recite. So he would, he would be between one side, because the way that Muhammad used to always position himself is that between him and Al-Quds used to be the Kaaba. So he used to pray on one side of the Kaaba, so he prayed towards the Kaaba, but towards Jerusalem. You know why? Because Muhammad loved that Kaaba, because Ibrahim Islam had made it, and it was the original house of Allah. So he would always position himself there. So he started to pray in that direction, and Umar Khattab would hear the recite. So Umar said, what I did is, you know the cloth that goes around the, uh, the Kaaba? He said, I hid myself underneath there. And it's a long cloth, it goes all the way down. So it's not like your knees will be exposed, it drops all the way down. He said, I moved myself all the way around. He was at a distance. He wasn't right next to the Kaaba, he was at a distance. So I moved myself all the way around until I was literally in front of him. And I would sit there and I would listen to his recitation. As he would recite, he said, Something happened to my heart. My heart softened up. I started to cry. And I wouldn't move from there until he finished. The moment Muhammad Sallam finished, he started to walk back, going home. I come out the cloth and I followed him. He got to one point. Muhammad Sallam was suspicious that somebody following me. I kept quiet. I carried on following him, but I wanted to talk to him. The moment I, Muhammad Sallam got to a certain part of Makkah, he looked back and he saw me. And he got worried. He said, don't come near me. Because he thought he came to attack him or came to kill him. He goes, what do you want, Umar? He says, I want to embrace Islam. He goes, I've heard the verses. I've heard the eyes of the Quran. And I believe that there's only one God, Allah, and that you are the Prophet. And that was the other story. And then Muhammad made dua for him. And that's when he embraced Islam. Now, when he did become Muslim, he was very clever. Because Umar bin Khattab was the kind of person... He, he always wanted people to know what his views are. He would never hide it. He's not that kind of character. So he said to the local people, who's the big mouth on Makkah? Who's the one when you tell something will go around telling everyone? And they said, there's a man by the name of Jamil bin Ma'mar. Jamil bin Ma'mar is like a, he's a crier. Like if there's an event happening, he will go to the middle of the city and he'll say, you know, the army's coming to attack us. Or half price and all bananas. Whatever that, the deal may be, okay? 10% off at Apple. He will go out and he'll say it. So Umri Khattab goes up to this man and he says to him, just want to let you know I've become Muslim. So this man looked at him and Umri Khattab just walked away a little bit and this guy legged it into the city, right where the, the Quraysh were, 
Iraq, the middle of the Kaaba, and he says, Umar has become a Sabian. Umar chased him, come to the city, he says, you're a liar. So everybody thought, oh, thank God he's not. He says, I'm not a Sabian, I'm a Muslim. I believe in Allah and I believe in the Rasul. And that was it. Everyone came out, all the Quraysh came out, and they were angry. They were angry because Umar bin al-Khattab became Muslim. This was a game changer. And they thought, if we're out there to kill Muhammad, we better kill this one first. Because this one's going to cause us even bigger problems. So Umar Khattab says, right, rolled up his sleeve, he goes, bring it on. And they all started to fight him. He, it was, he was fighting for hours. He was beating them up, they were punching him, he was going for everyone. He goes, no one's going to stop me. And they come to, came to a point, they got so tired, he sat there. And they came over to him. He said, if there was 300 of us today, 300, and we went to the battlefield, we will leave the decision. Either you will win or we will win. And what happened later on? The Battle of Badr happened. And how many of them were there? 300. This is Umri Khattab's own words. Then and there was a man that was there when he saw all the commotion, all these Quraysh that around him trying to beat him up, trying to kill him. He just, take my life. I will kill every one of you. I'll take you down with me. That was his attitude. This man says, why are you beating him up? He says, he become Muslim. He goes, what does it matter to you whether he becomes Muslim or not? Do you think that if you do anything to him today, that the Banu Adi, his tribe, are going to let you off? You will cause war in this land. Leave him be. And then he went. So this is now where Umar bin Khattab now announced himself publicly to the world. And they said that ever since Umar Khattab became Muslim, people now had the guts and the nerve. The Muslims will come to the Kaaba and they will pray. And having Hazrat Hamza and having Hazrat Umar al-Khattab, they would march. They said to Muhammad once, both of them, they said, today we will march to the Kaaba and we will pray. And we will stand on either side of this line and we will see who will stop us today. And they went and nobody could do anything because people were scared. Obviously now the um, impact of Umar ibn Khattab's conversion has now changed the outlook of the people in terms of the Muslims. Now the Muslims are gaining momentum. But it's interesting the way how really in many scenarios, if you are sincere and you want to, because many, many people have this problem where they say, I want to become a good Muslim, I want to leave my bad habits, I want to do this, but I can't do it. You cannot do it because you don't make the effort. That is so true. You have a dream that you want to become a good Muslim. You have a dream you want to pray five times a day, you want to be like this, and etc. But how many of you actually make the effort to make that change? Allah says, I don't need you. I put you on this earth for a test. You're either going to win or you're going to lose. But if you want to win, this test isn't designed for you to lose. It is not designed for those who want to win to lose. Those who want to win will win. But to win requires you to make the move, for you to make the sacrifice. Wallahi, listen to me very carefully. If you do not make any sacrifice towards Islam, if you don't even try to delay your dinner so that you can pray Maghrib, or put your alarm clock to get up for Fajr, or to even make an effort to go see, get yourself outside your comfort zone, you will lose every single time. And the nature of shaitan is, he will repeat your habits again and again, because you'll keep saying, tomorrow, I'll do it tomorrow, and I'll do it tomorrow, and I'll do it tomorrow. And tomorrow never comes, because tomorrow means, I don't want to make that effort, I don't want to make that sacrifice. If you really want to make the change, you have to bring it in from your heart. You've got to say, I'm going to make that time. I'm going to make that push. Because nobody wants to do things that they don't want to do. That's the reality. Islam is a sacrifice. Islam is a test. Islam is a push. But trust me, when you start doing it, Allah makes it easier for you. So those people that fail are the ones who just can't even get started. And they won't get started because they just won't want to make the, the, the first move. They just don't want to make that sacrifice. And trust me, you don't want to be doing this. In this climate today, the world moves so fast, there is no barakah in time. How quick has the days gone? How quick has the weeks gone? 
how quick have the months gone and before you know it Dajjal will turn up and when he turns up don't try to be a big man Prophet Muhammad said don't even try to face him he will just take one look at you and you will fall for him you take one look at you fall for him the problem I see today is if you want to take Dajjal as a social, economical, political problem already you see it today people are already following him so if you're not praying you don't fast or reluctantly you fast or you're not following the ahkam of Allah you're indulging in haram you've already, you've already succumbed you've already uh, done sujood to him you're done so when he turns up there's nothing but a medal he has to give you so you need to come out of this scenario very very quickly and the other situation is the way that we live our lives now how many people are you hearing in Slough? Youngsters are dying. I mean, my father's 86, 87 years old. It, for him, it's a shocker because all he keeps hearing is everyone underneath him are passing. His nephews, his friends' kids, the youngsters. And he's like, how am I still living? So now the shift, the, econ, you know, the equilibrium balance is just blown out. It's completely blown out. So you've got to take your life very, very seriously because that one day you're thinking you're going to make that change, it's going to be like a year. You thought you were thinking for about a day whether you're going to pray or not. A year goes by and you don't realize you actually missed the Salah for a whole year. So Umar Khattab now embraces Islam. And at the same time, people are still coming in to see Muhammad Sallam. Now, when, because of the dawah that was done in Abyssinia, the dawah that now, at this point, remember, those Muslims, those X number of Muslims who are in, now in Abyssinia, they haven't come back yet. Right? So just keep this in mind. When we talked last week about the Muslims that left Makkah to go to Abyssinia, they haven't come back. They don't come back until 12 years, 13 years after this event. So they're missing everything that's happening in Makkah. Right? Just keep that. Jafar bin Abu Talib is one of those people. That's the Prophet's first cousin, Hazrat Ali's brother. He is there. They're not coming back. Because of the dawah they've been doing there, Abyssinians are leaving Abyssinia to come to see Muhammad in Makkah. So 40 of them turn up in Makkah to see Muhammad And they sit down with him and they say, we've heard this because in our scriptures, it talks about the final messenger. After Isa bin Maryam, we don't know who that is, but everyone's pointing towards you. Can you tell us? Can you recite from this kitab? So Muhammad sat with them and he recited and when he recited and he taught them and showed them, they started to cry and they knew immediately that he was the Prophet. And they embraced Islam. Abu Jahl was watching this. So when they got up to leave, right? Because now they become Muslims, they know what they're going to take back. Now remember, there is a lot to learn, right? Because you'd be thinking, do they want to sit down and do a three-year madrasa course with him? No, because he's only got a certain amount of verses that come down. So they will learn. But they, at this point, it's just Tawheed. It's just Tawheed. It's just believing in one God. We have a problem today. We, can't, we, cannot, we cannot absorb this concept of one God. One God means to have this concept of had means that you submit yourself 100%. I'm not talking about in just your prayer. I'm talking about He has the right over you in the way you think about things. You don't get a job, you go to Him. Do you do that? Or do you pick up the phone to all your mates and say, can you sort me out? Why aren't you praying to Allah? Whenever you have troubles, do you go to Him? Do you have this concept of Tawheed? To absorb Tawheed is a lifetime in itself. We don't have it. You cannot say you have Tawheed if you're not praying five times a day. Impossible. You cannot say that I convict, I have a conviction and I, and I submit myself to the Lord, but I'm not praying. When Allah has ordered you to pray, it's a five-minute job. It's a two-minute job. And you can't do it. So how can you have conviction? So for them to just to learn that is a lifetime in itself. And they went. But Abu Jahl grabbed hold of them. And Abu Jahl said, can we ask you a question? He said, you were sent by your leaders to investigate this guy. To investigate them. So that you can build up some evidence and you can go back and have a look. He knew Abu Jahl understood because they were sent down there so that people can look at him. Is he true? Is he not true? Is he a false prophet? Who does he claim to be? Etc. You were here for a pre-investigation. When you do an investigation, you've got to be impartial.
So HMRC comes knocking your door. He's not going to listen to your sob story. He's just going to take an impartial view, take your evidence, what you got, go away and make a decision. You don't make, you don't turn around and say, that's it, I'm going to sign you a check. You know, we owe you 50 grand straight away. They'll look into it. He said, you come over here because you're a bunch of fools. You've come here, asked them a whole bunch of questions and you've walked away becoming Muslims. He goes, I've never met a bigger bunch of fools than you. And you know what they said to him? They said, we're not the kind of people who want to argue. May peace be on you. And so, there was a verse of the Qur'an that Allah sent down, which was, which was a really beautiful eye of the Qur'an. And Allah says in Surah Al-Qasas regarding them, and those to whom we gave the book, the kitab, before it, do, they did believe in it. So they had the kitab, the Ali kitab, they had a book before it, and they believed in it. And when it was recited to them, they used to say, we do believe in this book. It is the truth from our Lord. We are accepting its message even before it came. So he's saying that the kitab came to us before, it told us about Prophet and we already believed before he came. We already believed that he, the Prophet was coming. And then when we saw him, we accepted. Those shall receive their reward twice because they were following their previous religions. And then when Allah came to abrogate that, their religion with Islam, they follow it. So they get the, the reward of following Allah twice. Two religions. You understand me? The religion, the two religions. Look at that reward. For they have been steadfast and repay evil with good. Abu Jahl saying to them, he's cursing them, and they say, peace be on you. They repay evil with good and expend from what we have given them. And when they hear idle gossip, they turn away from it and say, we act as we see fit. As do you see fit. Peace be upon you. We do not desire the ignorant and the foolish. And that was their response. So when you think about how they responded, as long as you have your belief, when you know the way this game is played, it is up to Allah who's going to, he's going to change. If someone's aggressive to you, you deal with them in accordance to what Allah wants you to deal with them. There's no point of you throwing anything at them, trying to beat them up, trying to be aggressive. His time hasn't come. Ten years ago, you weren't there. So if a mu'min saw you, he would have wanted to do the same thing to you. Your attitude should be, may Allah guide you. Because the game is not over until it's over. If no one gave Umar Khattab a chance, shouldn't the Muslims have gone out to kill him first before they felt that he was going to kill them? No. They just, what did they do? They prayed for him. They prayed for him. It's a very different game set, right? We get angry with the kuffar. We just say, look, alhamdulillah, we've been honored to follow Islam. But if they have not been, let's just make dua for those people. And so you want to try and encourage them as much as possible. Because of Umar ibn Khattab becoming Muslim and people now taking Islam to a really public level where you can't even keep them hidden away. And Abu Talib did not stand down from giving protection to Muhammad Salam. And because he's the leader of the Banu Hashim as well. And remember Abu Talib knew that they wanted to kill Muhammad So Abu Talib had a meeting with the extended family, Abdul, the Abdul Muttalib family. And he said to the Abdul Muttalib family, you may not be Muslim like I am not Muslim. You may believe in your gods. And you may not like the fact that Muhammad is attacking your gods. But he is from our family. And if we don't uphold our tradition, if we don't, if we don't if practice what we preach, because what we believe in is that we uphold the value of our traditions and our family first. If you allow them to get to him, then you're nothing. They will see you as a useless family that you can't even defend your own, right? Fair point. So they agreed. They said, okay. So there were many people in that extended family, Muhammad they didn't like him. They didn't like Muhammad Salam, they didn't like what he was doing, but deal is a deal. We don't like certain individuals, but we have to protect our own because we don't, we show weakness. As a result of that, the Quraysh said, you know what, if this is your gameplay, we are going to write a formal agreement. Basically, we're going to pass it through parliament. And that document simply states that anyone associated with Abdul Muttalib and the Banu Hashim Nobody will trade with you. Nobody would marry into your family. You cannot marry into ours. We will have no trade deals with you. 
we will have nothing on the economic side, the political side, or anything else. To the point that some of you, we will, we will extradite you outside of Makkah. You can't even leave, it, leave Makkah. And they got it signed. They got it signed by all the other parties. That was done. It was signed and sealed, put in a leather pouch, and hung up on the Kaaba. Three years this happened. And they suffered greatly. So even those who were not Muslims had to suffer with Muhammad Sallam to the point that they used, in some of the hadith, they used to say that the babies used to cry of, of the Banu Hashim, that the mothers had to take leaves, right? And you know some of the kids who were like six, seven years old, they had to tend the leaves with food, right? Wait till they were asleep and feed them leaves because they were starving. Some of them actually died out of starvation. It was so bad for them, nobody, because... Any trade that was coming to Makkah, no one was allowed to sell to them. If you can't sell, you can't buy, you're not making any money. Hazrat Khadija was, anha, who was the wife of the Prophet, she was wealthy, very wealthy. She had a nephew by the name of Hakim bin Hizam. And she used to say to Hakim, go and get me the cap, uh, I've got, she's got a storeroom and she's got wheat and barley, right? She said, bring it and send it to us. They used to live up in the mountains in the caves, okay? Send it there. So, one day he was bringing this camel with a slave and Abu Jahl turns up and he says, what's this? They said, this is wheat and barley yeah, that we're sending. You, 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 hang on a minute, you're sending this over to the Banu Hashim, aren't you? And the Banu Mutalib. There's a trade agreement, you're not allowed to do this. Another man turned up by the name of Abdul Bakhtari. Abdul Bakhtari turns up and he sees Abu Jahl. He said, what's your problem? He says, we have an agreement. He can't be taking his food. He goes, are you stupid? This food belongs to Khadija. It's hers. There's no rule stating that she can't use her own food. Obviously, she's sending the food to, to the rest of the family. And this made Abu Jahl angry. So they got into a scuffle. And that's when Abu Bakhtari picked up a jawbone and he hit Abu Jahl on the face on this. Now, Abu Bakhtari was also part of the trade agreement against the Prophet Sallam. But he, was, he, he, he had sympathy for them. When Muhammad Sallam used to live in the house, Abu Talib said to order Muhammad Sallam, he said, do not sleep in your bed. Sleep in one of the other boys' bed. He would put Hazrat Ali there or the other son or he would put himself there in case they came to kill you at night. It wouldn't be you that they would be killing. This is the level of protection that he was giving him. So this game started getting really, really severe. The punishment, the torture, the boycotting was really bad now because once you've now taken a look, no one's trading with you. What's, what's left now? You're impacted. So the idea was, was if we can break the Banu Hashim, Banu Talib, those who are not Muslims will not support him anymore. They'll come away from supporting him and they could, they could end up leaving him. And who was one of those? Abu Lahab. So Abu Lahab used to go and see Hind, Right? The, the wife of Abu Sufyan. And he used to say, am I not loyal to you guys? They said, yeah, you're, you're, you're brilliant. You're Banu Hashim as well. You're like the direct first cousin. You're his uncle. He says, and have I not stuck by Allah and Uzzah, these gods? They go, yeah. He says, you know, this man, Muhammad, he used to come and give me dawah. And he used to say to me, Allah promises you paradise. He offers you all of these things afterwards. He says, and I look at him, what has he got to offer? His hands are empty. And he says, curse the hands of Muhammad. And that's when the ayah of the Quran, the Surah Lahab was revealed. Allah then said, no, curse the hands of Abu Lahab. And what did happen to Abu Lahab? In the eventual situ situation was, he got pastiles in his fingers. He couldn't use them. He had a disease. And it ate and eroded his fingers away. To the points his son... Couldn't these kids, both his sons could not bury him. They picked him up and threw him against the mountain and they didn't want to touch him. They just threw rocks at him. They even stoned him while he was dead. And that's how they ended up burying him. That's how Allah SWT can you know, leave your legacy. Abu Lahab, who thought he was the big man, wanted to leave a legacy behind so that his generation can think about what they're going to talk about. Your dad died, yeah, with pastas, right? Nobody wants to even touch his body and they chucked him against the mountain and threw rocks at him to bury him. So this was a scenario that, you know, that, that started to really pick up against the, the Prophet Muhammad So eventually what happened, certain members of the Quraysh tribe, they became quite sympathetic to the Muslim. They didn't like this. You know what? It was just, you know, like sometimes you get put under pressure that you, that you have to agree to this or you have to do such and such. 
So these people, they were quite closely related to Muhammad and because they had wives or they had aunts and so forth that were heavily related to them. So there was, there was one man by the name of Hashim, and he himself, he's, one of his great-grandmothers was related to the Abdul Muttalib. And what he used to do was he used to load up the camels as well at night. He used to send food off every single night. One night he did this, and he's sending food, and he feels so guilty because people were getting sick, the older were dying, there was starvation, children were suffering. He couldn't take it anymore. So what he did is that he went to one of his close friends, and he said to him that I need your support. He, goes, he said to him, look, I don't know how we can sit here and agree to this document against these people. They're like our friends, they are like our family. I want to abrogate this rule. I want to change this rule. And I need you to support me. This man turns around and says to him, we can't just support it like this. Right? We need power. We, you know, the parliament is 150 MPs. There's only you. If you want me to back you up, go find somebody else as well. So Hashim goes off and he gets support from another member. So he goes to one other person, tells them the same story. He goes, how can we sit there? We should be ashamed of ourselves. He goes, what can I do? You're attacking me. What do you want me to do? There's only you and me. Find somebody else. He goes, there is somebody else. There's you, there's me, there's someone else. I've got. He said, go find a fourth then. Then he went round, picked up the fourth, then the fifth. And the last one he picked up was Abdul Bukhtari. Now there was enough of them. So their now plan was, now there's enough of us, we've got the parliamentary meeting happening tomorrow. So they met up at night, they made a pact, an agreement, that they were going to one by one stand up and go against it. So they went to the parliament, they sat there with the Quraysh, and one of them stood up. And he said, I disagree with this treaty. We were forced into this treaty. Few of you made this up. You bribed the rest of us. We didn't give us time to think about it. And we didn't expect you to be treating them like this way. I go against it. Then the next one stood up and said, I support him. This is completely wrong what you're doing. Then the third one got up and says, how can we sit there and allow these people to suffer? There are children dying. There are elders that are dying. And we're still not giving them time. Then the last one, Bukhtari, got up. He said, all of you sit there eating food, satisfying yourselves while others are suffering. No, we're going to get rid of this document. We're going, to, we're, we're going to tear it up. Abu Jahal looked at him and he was smart. He said, you think I'm stupid? He goes, you don't think I, you lot got together last night and made this agreement? They said, we don't care what you think. When they went to go and get the document and they opened it up, the document, all references to do with all the jahiliya, meaning don't deal with them, don't marry them. Everything was taken out except for the name of Allah. Now, on the same note, Abu Talib went back to Muhammad So this is now rewinding back a little bit. Muhammad received a revelation and he's told Abu Talib, Allah has told me that that document has been destroyed. And the only thing that's left in that document is the name of Allah. So what happened was in that same meeting, just before these guys turned up, Abu Talib went in and he said, look guys, and he's very clever. He said, bring the document, let's reconcile, and let's get rid of all these problems that we have. So Abu Jahl and all these thought, thank God, he's come to his senses, they're going to hand over Muhammad to us. And he did that deliberately, because if he's told them beforehand, they would have got the document and checked it. So he said, bring the document. The document said, he goes, the reason I said that, so that you wouldn't tamper. If this document, my nephew told me, this document, when you open it up, everything of what you've written against the Muslims or against these two families has been removed and only the name of Allah. Which means if, the, if there is no conditions in that document, that document doesn't exist then. And he is the true and you should follow him. So they opened it up and to their shock. And that's why when these guys were, stood up as well and they got the document, everything was eaten up except for the name of Allah. And that was enough for everyone who was part of that agreement against the Muslims or against uh, Banu Hashim, Banu Abdul Talib. That was, that was their get-out clause because there was no formal document anymore. Documents destroyed. It's not like we have soft copies or email copies or official copies. Nothing like that. It's one single document. And that's how they used to do agreements. So you see in these scenarios how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can turn everything around. But one thing you'll always find here, and the people should understand this, whether it happens to you as an individual or it happens to you as an ummah, 
everything you learn about the seerah, no victory comes without a test. If you don't get a test, how would you ever improve? If anything you do, whether you study, you train, whether you work, whatever it is, if you can't break the boundaries and the barriers, if Allah doesn't push you in certain directions, how do you ever as a human become better if Allah just gave it to you like this? No one is deserving of Allah's help or Allah's rahmah until they have proven that they deserve it. And that is what life is all about. Here they were put through three years of hardship and then Allah gave them ease. And this is continuous. You'll see, you know, inshallah, of course, next few weeks, we're going to go through the whole story of how his uncle died, how his wife died. He went through the year of sorrow and challenges and then Allah took him to the heavens. He eased up his pain. So when you think about these scenarios, very simple moral to this story. Whenever you face difficulties in life, whether you're practicing or you're not, whenever you have a challenge in life, take it as a warning shot. Whenever Allah sends you a test, if you still do not take that test and come back to Allah, then Allah is sending you a punishment. If you're not praying, if you're not worrying, if you're not remembering Him, and you have difficulties, and this hasn't opened your eyes to come back to Him, and you turn away from Him even more, then this is a punishment. Allah is leading you down the wrong direction. He's saying that you don't want no, like Abu Jahl and Abu Lahab, you keep going that direction until you're ready. I'll keep taking you down the deep spiral until you're ready. Until the day you realize that I'm the one in control of everything and you submit yourself, I'll take you out. For those who believe, when Allah gives you a test, is a rahmah. Why? Because Allah is removing your sins and Allah is making you stronger, ready for the bigger test. Because Muhammad has always said, for the believer to get the greatest goal, he has to have the greatest challenge. The Prophet said that every prophet will have more pain and more suffering five times over than any other human because of our test. Because we are going to be given the greatest reward, our test has to be five times harder than yours. So always keep that in mind. Whatever you have, sufferings you have, ailments, illness, jobs, this, that, whatever, just remember it is from Allah. And if you have hardship, just think to yourself, if I've got my salah, Allah is giving me blessings. This dunya is temporary. It will finish. Your pain will go. It will be buried. Whether you have cancer, whether you've never had good money, you're suffering, it will finish. It will go. And then after that, Allah says, there is not, a, there is not even a concept of pain in the akhirah. There is nothing but pure internal bliss. It doesn't even end. You can have whatever you want. There are no rules. There are no regulations. It's just the only rule is be happy. And that's it. And that's what we strive for. So we don't care what happens to us in this life. Bring it on. If you get tests, it's from Allah. And that's it. It's called a musibah. It's targeted for you and only for you. Jazakallah khair. Inshallah, we'll see you guys next week.